Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Executive Order 9981. President Harry Truman signed it on July 26, 1948, creating the President's Committee on Equality of Treatment and Opportunity in the Armed Services, mandating the desegregation of the U.S. military. Though the implementation of the history-making order met some resistance, the military became a model, leading the way for other civil rights gains, including legislation and Supreme Court decisions in the 1950s and 1960s. As the Truman Library Institute in Washington, D.C. prepares to host a commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the landmark decision with a civil rights symposium, featuring military and civilian leaders, elected officials, journalists, historians, and students. There are questions as well. Yes, there's much to celebrate, in particular the service and sacrifice of black veterans. But there are also efforts some see as slowing progress or moving the country backward. Conversations on the future of civil rights and black American history continue to be debated across the country with laws intended to restrict its teaching. Elected officials have labeled the military's approach of outreach as woke and weak. The renaming of bases that honored Confederate generals has been criticized by presidential hopefuls, promising to change them back. And though a recent decision by the Supreme Court forbidding the use of race in college admissions exempted military academies, some leaders have questioned the merit of diversity as an American value. No one can deny, however, the historic importance of Executive Order 9981. And for some, it has been personal and life-changing. Admiral Michelle Howard, retired, was the first woman to become a four-star admiral in the U.S. Navy and was the first black woman to reach the rank of three and four stars in any branch of the U.S. Armed Forces. In a groundbreaking 35-year career, she was the first black woman to captain a U.S. Naval ship and the first woman graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy to become an admiral. At the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University, where she was a visiting professor, Howard, who was vice chair of the Truman Civil Rights Symposium Honorary Committee, focused on the cyber domain and associated issues of strategy and policy. At this month's symposium, Howard, along with other veterans, will share personal reflections and she is joining Equal Time to speak not only about the history and her story, but also the importance of diversity in building today's military and the way forward. Welcome to Equal Time, Michelle. <laughs> and I wanted to let our listeners know that uh, I have your permission, although I really feel I should be saluting or something. <laughs> Oh, gosh, Mary, thank you in advance for uh, this conversation. Great. Well, I think America is so accustomed to an integrated military that it comes as a surprise for some to be reminded of its fairly recent post-World War II history and the fact that it was a controversial move in 1948. So can you speak to that and to the importance of President Harry Truman's leadership? So we need to go back to the ending of World War II and the returning of all of the different veterans. And uh, African-Americans had basically served 
in as segregated units, particularly in the U.S. Army, but they had served with valor. Uh, and in uh, February of 46, Isaac Woodard is returning from the war. He's a veteran. He's on a Greyhound bus. He asked the driver to get off or have a stop for bathroom break, and the driver refuses and then pulls over in the next town in uh, South Carolina. And the police pull Isaac Woodard off the bus, and they beat him. And they beat him so brutally, they blind him. And uh, this gets to the attention, of course, to the NAACP. Uh, There is a trial for the police chief, Shill of uh, Batesville, South Carolina. And uh, he's acquitted in 20 minutes by an all-white jury. And uh, Walter White, the then president of the NAACP, gets a hold of President Truman, who's just shocked. This is horrific. And and I think in the end, we got to remember, President Truman was a veteran himself uh, of World War I uh, and had uh, was supposed to be a wonderful leader for his men. So he forms a president committee on equal rights. And this later becomes our commission on equal rights. Uh, And they spend the next year and a half compiling all of the inequality in our country and all of the brutality against people of color uh, from lynching to police brutality. Uh, And then they make a series of recommendations to include it's time to integrate the armed forces. So President Truman adopts the report in its entirety, and it's pretty forward-looking. I mean, back then, when that report came out, the commission said, hey, we ought to give reparations to the Japanese whose land we took, who nobly served in in the war. And, uh, uh, And we need to look into voting rights for Native American Indians. So he adopts this report and orders the integration of the armed forces uh, with an executive order, 9981. Now it was, you were right, it was not a popular decision. He he was told if he went down this path of civil rights, he would not get reelected. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, Can you speak to his leadership on this? Uh, You are the vice chair of the Truman Civil Rights Symposium Honorary Committee. And you're going to be speaking on a panel with fellow veterans. So what has this meant to you? Because you must have some personal reflections because really ultimately of this action, you built a 35-year career. What has it meant to you? I, you know, when I think about President Truman, I think about his ability to see all of us as Americans and citizens. So you not only have this executive order 75 years ago that says we need to have an integrated armed forces. This is the same year 75 years ago that the Armed Forces uh, Integration Act that allows women to serve on active duty gets signed into law. And so now for me, both as a woman and as a person of color, those momentous changes were the foundation for me coming into the service. Now, for the women, the law had restrictions. Women could be no more than 2% of the armed forces, because you know if we were more, we'd take over. uh, (laughs) They knew. (laughs) And women could not be generals or admirals. 
And that part of the law didn't get repealed till 1967. Uh, and the Navy, my service, didn't have its first woman admiral, the head of the nurse corps, Aileen Dirk, until 72. And then with the advent of the all-volunteer force, we started to see the percentage of women grow. And it's during that time frame that the 70s that the Naval Academies, which had been closed by law to women, were opened up. And so I was able to start my career at the Naval Academy. As a pioneer in many ways, share a little bit of personal reflections. Uh, I know you'll do this at the panel, but on what the military has meant to you. And when you were embarking on this career, did you really think about all those pioneers, the history of Black Americans in every American conflict, in, in every part of service from its beginning, really? So my father was an Air Force Master Sergeant. And um, my mother had been a governess in England. And uh, they were both the kind of parents that there was schoolwork, which gave you homework, but then there was the schoolwork your parents gave you. <laughs> and then, <laughs> we, we had to read a book a week. And my father gave me books uh, like Leckie's The Buffalo Soldiers when I was 12, which is pr obviously probably a college level book. He's like, you could do it. And books on Harriet Truman. Uh, I'm sorry, Harriet Tubman. And uh, it, it, they just made sure we were aware of this rich history of African-Americans in this country and all that we had done. However, that said, well, the journey for me started when I was 12 when I saw this documentary on television and uh, it, it was about the Air Force Academy and I was enthralled with the marching, the uniforms, the leadership opportunities. And I went to my older brother and said, I know what I want to do. I want to go into the military and, and I want to go to a service academy. And he said, you can't, they're close to women. And I thought he was messing with me. He's my brother. Yeah, <laughs> they mess with you. <laughs> I got two older brothers, so I know. <laughs> Exactly. So I go see my mom and she's like, honey, it's against the law. And that just, I was, I couldn't understand it. I could keep up with my brother and my bike. I mean, my goodness. And she said, wait, wait, you're only 12. You could change your mind. But she said, if I didn't, she encouraged me to apply when I was old enough. And if I was rejected because I was a woman, then we would sue the government. Wow. What support? I think that's a good lesson for parents. Support your children's ambitions. So the law changed in 76, and I applied in 77 and started Annapolis in 78. So I always say, hey, just in time. My parents had me just in time. <laughs> two, years, two years earlier, and uh, the career wouldn't have happened. But to this legacy of those who came before me, uh, you know, you think about the time I'm thinking about going to Annapolis, the, the Navy is making its first black admiral, Admiral Gravely. And wow. uh, so it's a, it's, it is only within my living history that we have all of this opportunity opening up for African-Americans. Yeah, the importance of role models. So what you have so many highlights uh, in your career and of your career, I, that would be the whole podcast if I just listed them. So what have been 
in your mind, particular highlights of your career, both achievements and also the intangibles, because I know there are probably lessons that have served you well in your life. So I think the, the, the first lesson is the one my mother gave me. You know, you need to go after what you think is right and, and not worry about whether or not you benefit, but, but whether the community benefits. And literally, if you do the right thing, you can sometimes change the world. And so this idea of persistence about going after what you think is the right thing to do, she, she gave to me. Uh, throughout my career, just uh, some of the missions that stand out, the tsunami relief efforts uh, in Indonesia uh, in uh, 2004, uh, we went there to help the people. And I remember feeling surprised and touched. I mean, Indonesia is a predominantly Muslim country. And here we are going ashore uh, uh, with my Marine counterparts and we're visiting the displacement camps. And the people, and I'm a woman, I'm in uniform, but I'm still a woman. The people were coming up uh, and the women were hugging me and the kids were grabbing my hands and the men were shaking my hands. Uh, They were so grateful that uh, we and other countries had come to help. And what a great opportunity to be a representative of America as a good neighbor and to be the recipient of all that uh, gratefulness when, when I'm just the officer who has the privilege of carrying out that, that mission. Uh, so, you know, the American people did a great thing by sending us there uh, and letting us help. You know, I was in the Pentagon on 9-11. And uh, I just, that was a tough day. Not first, I think, because we lost shipmates, uh, members, and, and civilian shipmates too, right? But it was, to me, it was so frustrating. I had trained my whole life. I'd been through Desert Storm. I had command of a ship. <laughs> and you train your whole life to put on a flak jacket and a helmet, go to general quarters after you get attacked. And the best we could do was, orderly evacuate the building. And uh, I just, that day for America, and I think for the world, was just a, a huge turning point in, a, in our mindset about uh, security and safety for all of us. Um, and I would say probably the, one of the most exciting missions uh, was the rescue of Captain Phillips. Uh, from the Mersk, Alabama, the Mersk, Alabama, and being taken by the pirates. And, and me, more for the, when you talk about the armed forces and how diverse they are. And in this case, I had uh, marine assets uh, underneath me. I had support uh, from uh, the Air Force uh, and uh, the Army. I mean, whatever I needed, uh, the, the country was... Uh, willing to send my way to help rescue Captain Phillips and the support of other countries because uh, it was a broader counter-piracy mission and they were willing to help in any way. Uh, the Japanese were, you know, will help provide P3 flights to, for intelligence. So it was um, a wonderful day at sea, but it's, it's the opportunity to see sailors and Marines work a miracle like that. Uh, it just makes you very proud of what our armed forces can do. Mm. Was the movie accurate? <laughs> um, 
say it was about 60% accurate. Okay. 40% entertainment. (laughs) Well, they got to do that in there. They got to put that in there. Um, The symposium in D.C. is open to the public. I know you hope some come and see how they can celebrate or commemorate this anniversary. What do you hope that they may learn and what lessons should they take away from the commemoration of this 75th anniversary of the integration of armed forces in the U.S.? You know, over this last year, uh, when I've talked about this subject, and this actually ties to my other volunteer work, the Naming Commission for the Department of Defense, um, it struck me for those who are younger, uh, let's say 40 or less, the how for them it's it's a surprise how new all of this is that uh to hear from me that some of this opportunity didn't exist when i was thinking about going into the service uh when i first started as a midshipman woman could only serve on the hospital ship <laughs> and that wow you know by the time i graduate women could serve on support ships and by the time I'm a mid-grade officer, the, the law that prohibits women from serving on combatant ships is uh, that portion of the law is repealed so I can move into amphibious ships. So for them to, to meet someone where the law constrained, denied opportunity for women, and that's why Truman's Act is so important. Because if you can't serve in the mainstream part of the service, uh, you can't grow up into the leadership positions. And so without Truman, uh, African-Americans would have been denied leadership opportunities. Oh, definitely. That ceiling would have been there. And while sharing this history is so important, we know that there have been efforts basically now to restrict the teaching of American history, particularly as it deals with race and racism. There's a fear that it would cause discomfort among some and even guilt. Could you talk a little bit about that and what's in danger of being lost? Well, what's in danger of being lost is the truth, the truth of our culture and the truth of our history. Uh, What's in danger of being lost is the wonderful document the Constitution has become that when you think about the Constitution in the beginning, people who look like you and me were not a citizen, but it is proven to be a living document that allows each of us to be have the full rights of citizenship. Uh, and that's what Truman was trying to get after. So when you're concerned about just the facts of how this country evolved, just the facts of legal uh, constraints on sectors of the population, just the facts of society policies, uh, government policies that inhibited opportunity for all of our citizens, policies that, although theoretically you have the right to vote, in reality you can't vote, that You have to have that context to appreciate the Constitution. And you have to have that context to really appreciate where we are now. So it matters. 
Oh, absolutely. Our history, the truth of our history, will always matter. The U.S. military still remains one of the most trusted and respected of American institutions. Yet recently, we've seen distrust in institutions, including some recent criticisms from some places I think are kind of interesting. Uh, Alabama U.S. Senator Tommy uh, Tuberville has held up military promotions over its policy of travel funds and support for troops and dependents who are based in states where abortion uh, is illegal. Uh, he raised eyebrows when he criticized uh, the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, for who's former military, of course, for trying to, as he said, quote, get out the white nationalists, uh, the white extremists, the white nationalists from the military. Um, right here in North Carolina, we saw some presidential hopefuls pushing back at the renaming of some bases, Fort Liberty, of course, instead of Fort Bragg, which was a Confederate general. And some other folks have just put out complaints about, oh, the military is getting too weak, too woke. That's an awful lot of, to use a phrase, a military phrase, incoming, that the military is getting. So could you talk a little bit about all of that, particularly as we still have a priority to have a strong military? We do have a priority. Uh, Our military represents our strength. And so those bases, uh, whether they're here in the United States overseas, represent the strength of our country and our ability to protect our citizens. So some of this, uh, it is interesting about the base naming. Uh, That was a law that Congress created, not Department of Defense. (laughs) So if 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 members of Congress have an issue with the base renaming, they uh, they were the ones who decided that should happen. Oh yeah, uh, they overcame a presidential veto. I think yes. they were strong for it. Yes. yes, and with the military support. Yes, and you were on the commission, right? I was the chair of the naming commission. Yes, so yes. it was an eight-person commission, uh, and we were tasked to go out and identify. Every defense asset, streets, buildings, ships that were named after uh, someone who voluntarily served the Confederacy or honored the Confederacy or that individual. And um, it was astonishing. I think by the time we were done, we had a list of about 750 items, streets and buildings. And uh, what got the limelight, of course, were the Army bases. Those had been named... um, a couple in World War I as, as posts and then became forts, but most of those were named in World War II. So it was not, you know, uh, something that was, you know, right after the Civil War, oh my gosh, you know, reconciliation. No, uh, the, the, the idea behind the naming of those army bases was to engender patriotism. So they decided to name bases, new bases in the South after Confederate generals and the ones in the North after Union generals. Uh, And without regard, I think, to the fact that some of these communities where these bases were named were predominantly African-American outside the gate. Um, And so that sort of blindness to uh, what what words mean uh, existed in our armed forces. And so we're talking around the same time that 
you know, Truman says enough of this and we have got to integrate to uh, work, work as a team. So as we went through the base renaming, we went out to these communities and worked with the communities uh, to get to the new names. So in the case of, for example, uh, Fort Bragg, which is now Fort Liberty, uh, the base commander and mission commander, uh, community leaders got together and they, they're the ones who came up with the name. Uh, the base commander later said, it was in a session with a gold star mother who said, my son gave her life for liberty, so I think the space should be named Liberty. And why you would want to change that now is, uh, as, and for me, we we worked well with the communities and, and visited them in person during COVID uh, to make sure we had their input uh, and, and commitment to be part of the process to get to a new name. I wouldn't want to drag those communities back through that. And in the end, I think about the names we chose for the bases, um, and they're just iconic Americans, from President Eisenhower to Dr. Mary Walker uh, to Sergeant Johnson of World War One to Hal and Julia Moore. The first time uh, we've included a family member as part of a base name, long overdue, long overdue. And it just so happens in these iconic Americans that we picked, this is the first time a base has been named after an African-American. The first time a base will be named for women. Certainly the first time a base includes a family member. And it's important. That too is a part of our history uh, with the previous names that was not acknowledged. The contributions of all of the members of the armed forces the families who support the members and the communities who support the members. My sister's a gold star mom. Uh, my nephew was in the Marines. And so this really hits home. So I appreciate you speaking about that so eloquently. Following up on that, I'd really like for you to talk about examples of how diversity has strengthened the U.S. military and has been a positive American value because when I looked at the senator's objections about white nationalists, about some of the policies and holding up promotions, I was struck by the fact that those policies were basically, uh, you know, to have people learn more about the history of this country and to accommodate more women that are in the military. These were policies that came about to really service a more diverse military, which would be Truman's uh, legacy, partially, you know, as well. So just speak a little bit to our audience on how a diverse military strengthens America. So this gets down to the idea of diversity uh, and the multitude of studies that go back to the 70s. Um, and particularly when you want an organization to thrive and then you're coming across challenges, you need different perspectives in the conversation to get to a resolution that is sound uh, and viable. And uh, so uh, heterogeneous teams tend to work harder together because one, they... They have so many different individuals with so many different experience sets. So diversity is not just 
our inherited traits, the color of our skin, the type of our hair. Diversity is also our acquired traits, whether we speak a foreign language, whether we've lived overseas, uh, our level of education. And when those types of teams get together, they have to work harder at communicating with each other. And that tends to strengthen the team uh, and gets to deeper understanding of potential solutions or visions or pathways. And um, uh, there was a parliamentarian uh, in England who I think, I think he, he said it the best way. When ideas clash, then the truth rubs out. Mm. And so if you don't have different ideas, then you can't get to the truth. Uh, and you can't get to a path uh, that is probably the right path for whatever mission you're trying to achieve. Uh, so it doesn't matter if you're a business or the armed forces, there is power in diverse teams. And certainly been enough studies that um, diverse boards, diverse companies tend to outperform uh, those that are more homogeneous. So, you know, you've got to have these different perspective, different viewpoints uh, in order to be truly successful. Yeah, I think those studies have shown that's when creativity and innovation happens because you're not hearing the same old, same old. You're getting those different perspectives and sometimes things you've never thought of before. So you have to have those different perspectives. And also, as you said, when you went into Indonesia and they saw you and all of you, you represented America to them. And, that and was a value. And we did represent America. So America is, uh, it is Caucasians, but it's also uh, African-Americans. It's also uh, individuals of Asian Pacific descent. It's also immigration, Im uh, people who've immigrated and children of first-generation children of immigrants. It's Native Americans. It's all of these. And the armed forces needs to reflect the country uh, she's going to protect. Uh, she's not there to protect just one group. She's there to protect all of her citizens. And so uh, when we uh, are abroad and we reflect our nation, then we also show a promise of opportunity that comes with democracy. And that's just as an important a message as the physical help we're giving. Yes. I'd love your comments on, or your thoughts, on a recent decision. The Supreme Court, they forbid the use of race in college admissions, but they exempted military academies because they said that it, that was to America's benefit and I thought, well, if, if it's in our country's interest to train military leaders that reflect America, should that be a value across schools and corporations and government? Uh, what did you think of the decision and of that exemption? Well, I, you know, um, I would be with the uh, judges who got to write the minority opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's just, it's, it's in some ways... Um, you know, it, 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 it is, oh my gosh, we're going back. And it's, it's, uh, it, it is not a recognition about 
how recent all of this is and um, that the, the laws that came out in the 1960s came out for a reason, but it's, it's, it's not going to change goes slowly uh, with people. And um, so you have to look at, when you want to look at individuals, you have to look at their upbringing and the environment they were brought up in and whether or not they had additional challenges. And so if we're at the point where we don't think that uh, there's still a color line in this country, um, we're premature to me in that judgment. And uh, we, we, need, we need more time to continue to evolve this democracy uh, uh, and to acknowledge uh, some past injustices that still uh, permeate our society. It's interesting that Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, who I would say is an example of Black female excellence and her brilliant dissent, but she said, well, does that exemption mean that African-Americans are suited to the bunker and not the boardroom? I don't think I would have phrased it that way. So the military is not just about, uh, particularly the service academies. This is not just about your your tactical proficiency in combat. It's about the development of the future leadership of the services, starting at the beginning. Uh, So when you look at, for example, my service, the percentage of admirals who come, whose alma mater is Annapolis, that clearly is a factor then in someone having a successful career. Uh, and so the leadership skills that you develop uh, and and uh, continue to develop with this great start um, uh, are equal to those that someone gets starting off in a in a company. So I that's that's to me, and it's and and of course I find her statement ironic since I'm on I'm a board director for IBM. <laughs> you've got it all going on so well, that is interesting though right and so for them well no that's but that's leadership right they are looking for someone who's led a global organization so i was vice chief a large global organization and has had to uh, interact with with national leadership of other countries uh, and so i you get those skill sets if you grow up to be a senior leader in the military. Yeah, it's interesting that the court would look at it as something that needs an exemption as opposed to looking at the military's success as a guide. Uh, yes. But <laughs> well, I'm not well, a lawyer. I'm not I a know. lawyer. And I... Yeah, well, looking at the anniversary, though, you can see how the military really was a guy, like you've pointed out, looking at America at that time, uh, then you didn't have the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Fair Housing Act, all of these things. And in in many ways, the military led the way. Uh, I think it was you could say a path to many of the civil rights laws of the sixties. That uh, Truman's uh, executive order, um, which actually it was a while before the military actually complied with that executive order. 
Um, so for the army, it was the impetus of the Korean War that finally forced them to uh, integrate uh, their their branch. Um, for the Navy, it was much, much longer. And uh, you're talking about the Civil Rights Acts of the 60s. Uh, you know, my Navy was having uh, black sailors do have uh, uh, carrier sit-ins in the early 70s because of racial injustice. Um, so although the laws can change and, and policies can change, I'm not, in some cases, I'm not so sure that the mili military is the uh, leader uh, that uh, when you look at the historical facts that we say it was. And to that point, the, the base uh, for the Fort Lee in Virginia decided to rename it after Lieutenant General Gregg, who, uh, who's still alive. He started in World War II and uh, as a, as in a segregated army, as enlisted, became an officer, and then grew up to be the first African-American to reach uh, three-star. And he was a logistician. Uh, and Fort Lee, that's their primary mission. And then we also named it after Charity Adams, the first African-American Black and the only uh, uh, African-American black to lead troops overseas and her, her postal units just uh, last year, I think received the congressional gold medal. Well, Lieutenant General Gregg, when he first became an officer was stationed at Fort Lee. He was not allowed in the officer's club because it was still segregated. Hmm. And now the officer's club is named after him. But the fact that he's still alive shows just how recent yes. it all is. And and, and as you say, you know, the Brown decision, Brown v. Board, was in 1954, but we still see school systems struggle with yes. integration. So as you say, it's a journey. It is. And we just, uh, I think that's why the history of all this is important and, and recognizing uh, President Truman's legacy, we have got to realize where we came from and make a commitment to keep moving forward. Speaking of moving forward, what do you see as the future for the military? What's next? And also for you, what are your plans? You've had this incredible career. I would say you have so much more to give. So first for the military and then for you. Uh, I would, for the military, I just, you know, we have these wonderful sons and daughters from all over America. And it, it, is, it is a privilege to get to lead these individuals. And, you know, they, they join because uh, they're, they're patriotic. And uh, it's the, the idea of teamwork. And well, and if there is one area I would say the military always leads, it's in youth, right? I mean, by the by the time I left the retired from the Navy in 2017, 80% um, of our enlisted force was already millennials. <laughs> so it, it uh, we're the the military is a youth oriented organization, uh, and so we tend to, uh, as you have clusters of of uh, types. Uh, we tend to be on the leading edge of that that cluster. And um, I will tell you, 
those young people who came in um, were just as patriotic as the baby boomers, uh, of which I was the last to, to go out. So I, I think as long as we continue to make sure our military reflects America, it's, it's it just, I just think of it, it's like the American flag. It's not all one color. And you need all these different colored fibers. And when they're woven together, it is strong. And that's the future we have, that these different colored fibers woven together will give us a strong military. Uh, for myself, I had honestly, I was ready. <laughs> I, I mean, I know you're like, oh, there's so much more. And I go, well, by golly, but I did <laughs> almost 40 years. <laughs> yeah. You want a vacation, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I am uh, the offer to go uh, be a visiting professor at GW came in and I said, I, if I don't take this now, I'll never, I'll never get a chance like this again, I'm sure. And it was just uh, fantastic uh, to work with the undergrads and graduates uh, for a couple of years and it allowed me to create a course in cyber and international relations, which I think was needed. And then uh, um, uh, the opportunity with IBM came along and that's another one that uh, is an area uh, their work is a, uh, their the corporate work is an area I'm 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 interested in. So that was what's that point. area? What is that area? Cyber, cyber. Uh, oh, cyber. That's a whole nother conversation. That's yes. a, a for the future. Uh, well, we have optimism for you and for the military. But always we talk about progress and setbacks, and you you talk about how the military still has a ways to go. So we saw on January sixth. The rioters at the Capitol, and it come to find out that more than a few had military backgrounds and were veterans. Uh, so, yes, we have a diverse military moving forward, and we're very optimistic. But how how do we, as a country and the military, keep in general moving forward when you do have these setbacks? Well, the so I, I agree with you. I mean, I think right now we're we're starting to, uh, you know, as they comb through the different individuals who rioted, that possibly as high as one in five had a military background, um, which is disproportionate when you think about the military makes up about one percent of our society. Um, but it it does say that for those folks, um, and I think maybe with the exception of one, they were all veterans. They were no longer active duty. Uh, uh, for those folks, there was something about this idea that the election had been stolen and that they were somehow still doing right by the then commander in chief. Uh, and it is distressing uh, to read statements where some of them thought, golly, as soon as we rise up, the rest of the military will join us that they had deluded themselves into thinking their perspectives were shared across the military when, of course, they weren't. And uh, that is going to be, I think, an issue uh, when you think about, I, you know, one of the more distressing reports I think I ever read was the uh, unclassified put out on the web 
when the three-letter intelligence agencies looked into the election and looked at the Russian involvement. Uh, And then you see how much ferment they're trying to create. And, uh, you know, they've got trolls who are playing uh, white nationalist and trolls who are playing Black Lives Matter and creating this uh, uh, hatred uh, fights on uh, social media. And they're playing both sides uh, and none of it's real. And I think so we have to look at how our citizens are educated and, and, how, and how they've got to understand that they have to have a dose in today's society and the way the media is set up, a healthy sense of skepticism that what they're hearing may not be the truth and uh, to try and find the truth for themselves. Well, does it give you hope, though, that it seems like the leadership really is committed to this idea of a military that is informed and looks like America? Yes. And that first part, informed, is the most important part. I was very proud, and I mean, I don't know anything that needs my advocacy, but when Chairman Milley testified a few years ago and uh, was uh, asked about this very topic, and he said, we have to be able to read about all sorts of ideas and perspectives and theories. We have to. Um, uh, otherwise, we don't grow as individuals and learn how to reason for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And so we have to understand history and understand the different theories and understand uh, where countries have failed in order to prevent our own failure and to continue our our great path of democracy. What a wonderful message to end on. Although I always ask my guests, this is something, and you can think about it, answer it or not, and that is, what question have I not asked or topic that I haven't covered that I should have because you think it's important and you have something to say? So the piece that I don't think we got to is we looked at Truman's policies from a domestic standpoint. But Truman himself, in that letter to Congress, when he uh, sponsored the report, put it in international context, that in order uh, to engender hope for people who are being oppressed, we have to clean up the imperfections of the democracy we have at home. And we know how to do it. We know how to do it. We just have to have the will. Wow. Well, folks like you have had that will. In fact, I think you willed everyone into changing the law since it kept changing to keep <laughs> up with you. <laughs> and I, this symposium is going to be fantastic and informed, informed, informed. I love that message you left the listeners too. So I want to thank you. Michelle, or as I have to say, retired Admiral Michelle Howard, (laughs) for being a guest on Equal Time. Thank you so much. Mary, thank you. So what's keeping me up at night? 
that so many use the excuse of religious belief to exclude rather than include. A Colorado woman believes she may decide to design wedding websites, and her free speech rights mean she should be able to refuse gay couples her services. Not that any have asked. As hypothetical as that sounds, the United States Supreme Court agreed with her. And now, as Justice Sonia Sotomayor stated in dissent, the court, for the first time in its history, grants a business open to the public a constitutional right to refuse to serve members of a protected class. I'm not sure what the next step is, but I'm examining my true meanings of free speech as well as faith and values. One listener says she's experiencing what so many are, being caretakers for those who once took care of so many of us. It's difficult, but she says she still feels blessed that she is able to carry on. So what's keeping you up at night, listeners? And what questions do you have, especially about issues of policy and politics seen through a lens of social justice? Tweet me at mcurtisnc3 and check out my columns at rollcall.com. I want to thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.